Welcome to the OnScript podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript. Hey everyone, welcome back to the podcast. This is Matt Lynch coming to you from Regent College in Vancouver, British Columbia. And I wanted to just start out by saying thanks for listening and for your support. If you'd like to sign up to our newsletter, you can go to onscript.study and do so. We're going to be getting that a little bit more active in this coming year, I hope. It's one of my quasi-New Year's resolutions. Um, And also, if you want to give us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, don't let us stop you. Don't let us stand in your way or let, uh, you know, good intentions stand in your way. Go on over wherever you do that and give us a review. We'd really appreciate that. And thanks so much for listening. Enjoy this episode. Well, welcome everyone to another OnScript. And today I'm really delighted to um, introduce somebody who I've been following for a number of years um, with great interest, seeing his career develop. He's, He's an incredibly exciting young scholar who whose sharp mind is a real inspiration. I'm, I'm, I learn a lot from him. Um, he's been on the show before, actually. We we had a, a sort of little bit of a debate on divine simplicity um, back in 2020, for those who may remember. Um, Ryan Mullins was um, one and Stephen um, Nemesh was the other uh, in uh, taking um, the side for divine simplicity and, and Ryan was presenting his own critique. It was um, a little bit over my head, that that debate, I I must admit. Um, But today, we're going to be talking about Stephen's uh, new book um, that's just just coming out, or has it already been published, or did I see pre-pub? No, it's it should be coming out next year. Oh, it's coming out next year. The book, <laughs> and this is really hot off the press. Okay, well, this um, this book, um, theological authority in in the church, is going to be the um, the topic of discussion um, today. Um, but let me first introduce Stephen a little bit more formally because I'm waffling on here. Stephen Nemesh has a PhD in theology from Fuller Theological Seminary, where he still studied under. Professors Oliver Crisp and Veli Matti Kerkenen, and I haven't pronounced that correctly. Um, how should it be pronounced? I think it should be pronounced something like Karkainen, but I'm not sure. Oh, fair enough. Well, well, we'll call him Professor K. He is the author of Orthodoxy and Heresy, a volume in the Cambridge Elements in the Problems of God series, and two forthcoming books one of which we're going to be talking about today. One is Theology of the Manifest, Christianity Without Metaphysics. That's going to be published with Lexington Press or Fortress Academic. And um, and Theological Authority in the Church, Reconsidering Traditionalism and Hierarchy, which is going to be published with Cascade Books. He currently works as an instructor of Latin and Greek at North Phoenix Preparatory Academy. And he is happily married to Rachel, and they have a six-month-old son named Christian. I've got to say, you've got a beautiful child. I love, I love keeping up to date with you on on Facebook and and uh, seeing your beautiful family there. Welcome to Onscript. Thank you very much for having me. Why don't we um, then get straight um, 
to to you a little bit of the background of of what brought you into the world of of theology and you know I realize you you moved to um to America you studied at Fuller and um, what what brought you to that point well when i was um so i i should say i was born in america but my parents came to america from romania before the communist government romania. had fallen mm-hmm. Yeah, so my parents are from Romania. My dad left Romania in 1981, I think, and my mom in 1989, about half a year before the revolution began. And they got married in November of 1989 in Southern California. They had me the next year. Um, So I've lived in America my whole life. However, my parents are uh, Pentecostals from Romania. So they are uh, Christians, they're religious, but they were also a religious minority because, of course, Romania is a majority Orthodox country. So... I think it's almost a universal experience that if you grow up in a household of a religious minority, you're perhaps likelier to receive a more in-depth religious education than if you were to grow up in the majority religion of your culture. Um, So I can certainly say that from when I was young, especially my mother, my mother was really the first theologian of the Nemesh family, and I I wouldn't really be a theologian if it weren't for her. She raised me to believe about uh, God and about Christ and to believe the various things that she believed also. So I I was raised with a theological education of sorts. I really began to be interested in theology around the time I was 16 or so years old. Um, The the older brother of a friend of mine began a Bible study, and he began to teach us some of the things that he himself had learned uh, studying theology. Uh, So that's what really sparked the, that's what really sparked a, a taste for theology in my mind. Um, I did my undergraduate degree in philosophy at Arizona State University. I did a Master of Divinity degree at Fuller Seminary in Arizona. And then I did my PhD in theology at Fuller Theological Seminary in Pasadena with Oliver Crisp. And from about the time of, uh, from about the time I began my master's degree in about 2013 or so to the writing of my dissertation in 2020, 2019-2020, I had been wrestling for a very long time with this idea of converting to one of the more traditional churches like Eastern Orthodoxy or Roman Catholicism. And one of the things that was pulling me in that direction was precisely this issue of the way that theological authority in the church functions in those traditions. Um, If there's one thing that's a stereotype about Protestantism, and especially more low church forms of Protestantism, like the Pentecostalism I grew up in, it's that there is not a centralized theological authority who can tell people, this is good, this is bad, this is what you can believe, this is what you can't believe, you know, uh, we can have diversity of opinion about this, we cannot have diversity of opinion about that. Those things don't exist. Everybody's sort of left to their own devices, or so the story goes, to figure things out for themselves. And... Mm -hmm you know, for various reasons that leads to people splitting from each other, forming new churches. Roman Catholicism especially was attractive to me because in principle, at least there's a mechanism for controlling the theological chaos in the church and coming to definitive and binding, you know, decisions about what is and is not acceptable, theologically speaking, for the church. So I was I was wrestling with this issue for a long time, and I was very close to converting myself, but eventually I decided against it. Various things in my life led to the decision uh, that, that I'd not do it. And this book, together with the other books that I've written, is basically a way in which I tried to work out in my own mind the reasoning why I decided not to become Catholic and what are the consequences of accepting that reasoning. 
So it's not just, um, why did I not become a Catholic? But what does my not being a Catholic mean? What does my not being an Eastern Orthodox mean? How should I do theology? How should I think about theology um, in light of the fact that I am intentionally and consciously uh, not a Roman Catholic or an Eastern Orthodox? Uh, so this is this book is really my attempt, my partial attempt to explain my own thinking to myself and to other people and to note its consequences. Um, this discussion about, you know, evangelicals and Protestants in general, you know, swimming the Tiber or swimming the Bosphorus River and becoming Orthodox or becoming Catholic, this is something that has been going on, at least in America. I'm not so sure how common it is in other parts of the world, but at least in America, it's been happening. Uh, and there are really popular figures who have done this. And, you know, it's part of their public legacy now that they're converts to Roman Catholicism, such as Scott Hahn, Frank Beckwith, and other figures, mm. theologians and philosophers alike, pastors, ordinary folk. This is a really common thing that's happening, and it seems to me that, especially in the present day, there are a lot of books written defending Roman Catholicism, arguing for Roman Catholic claims, a Roman Catholic understanding of theological authority, but there is not the same engagement from a Protestant side. Um, so it seems to me that there was a need for a book like this that explains why mm. should you accept a Protestant, uh, what I will call a sort of a low notion, a low conception of the church's authority in theology. Why would you accept that? Um, and what are the consequences of accepting that? Um, so not only is there not much Protestant engagement with this stuff, I also think that the sort of Protestant engagement that does exist doesn't go far enough. Um, you know, you can read, for example, Kevin Van Hooser's work on biblical authority after Babel and his work on hermeneutics. Mm. Uh, Kevin Van Hooser is an interesting case because on the one hand, he tries to represent a sort of a mere Protestantism. He tries not to be overly confessional or overly specific in his Protestantism. But it seems to me that his own brand of Protestantism, at least on the surface of it, is still too Catholic, Catholic with a lowercase c. Um, one of the points that I make in my book is that it's not Roman Catholicism per se that is a problem. It is certain dimensions of the Catholic mentality, the Catholic approach to religious faith in general, Catholic with a lowercase c, there are problems there. Um, and the tr if the project of the Reformation is going to be pushed forward, and if the consequences of rejecting Roman Catholic claims to authority are going to be understood, it means to some extent moving in a post-Catholic direction and, and uh, pushing back against certain lowercase c Catholic tendencies that exist even in uh, traditional forms of Protestantism. So that's a very long answer to your question. But why did I write this book? What moved me to write this book? Um, in, a, in a nutshell, it's because I wrestled for a long time with becoming a Roman Catholic. I decided against it. And I wanted to explain to myself and to other people also, why not become a Roman Catholic? And what is the consequence of making that choice? How should you think as a theologian yeah. if you don't make that choice? Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, that's really, really gone into my second question to ask the background of, of this particular uh, project. Perhaps I could just uh, take a, a step further and, and ask you a little bit about your interlocutors, because I think you're right. Your your book is offering something that I haven't seen before. Um, this is uh, a fresh Protestant injection into um, the discussions around this. I mean, there's lots that have been published by Roman Catholics in particular on these issues. Um, was it Rusty Reno has just published something, Scott Hahn, obviously yeah. lots of things, but but also recently on on theological engagement with 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 scripture. Thomas Joseph White. I mean who who have been your interlocutors as you've wrestled with these questions, particularly from the Catholic side? 
Thomas Joseph White is one figure that I enjoyed reading very much. And in the time when I was considering becoming a Catholic, I read, for example, his book, The Light of Christ, An Introduction to Catholicism, and his discussion of the nature of authority in the church, uh, the way that Roman Catholicism understands the pretense to infallibility on the part of the magisterium and the role that divine providence plays in that uh, was very important. I also like very much Matthew Levering. I read his book, um, Was the Reformation a Mistake? Why Catholic Doctrine is Unbiblical. Mm, it's yes, not unbiblical, yes, I should I say. Um, so yeah. I, I read that book and it has a it has a, re a response by Kevin Van Hooser. And actually I published a review of that book in the Journal of Analytic Theology when it came out a few years ago. Uh, so I, I, re I reviewed that book. Um, Matthew Levering again, uh, Thomas Joseph White. Of course, the documents of Vatican II, you have to go to those if you want to talk about these things. You can't talk about things, you know, like the way they were in the Reformation era. You have to address the Roman Catholic Church as it exists now if you're going to talk about these issues um, because we don't live in the 16th century. We live in the 21st century. So the understanding of the magisterium that comes out in Lumen Gentium and in uh, Dei Verbum and other such texts were, was also an important dialogue partner for me. Um, Contemporary commentators, like Catholic commentators on scripture, a lot of times will make connections between um, Roman Catholic claims about, let's say, Petrine primacy or the apostolic authority and other pretenses to theological authority that existed in the first century and earlier, for example, on the part of the Pharisees and the language of binding and loosing and so on. Um, and even Protestant commentators will make those connections as well. Uh, so mm -hmm. those have been part of the story for me, the interlocutors that I'm working with. Um, I should also say this. In this book, I'm trying to argue for a notion of theological authority that I justify by other means in other books. So, for example, in the book Orthodoxy and Heresy um, and in my other book, Theology of the Manifest, I have a much more strictly philosophical theological approach. I try to show on philosophical grounds what is problematic about um, you know, more traditional Catholic understandings of ecclesial authority and theology. In this book, I wanted to get into the New Testament, and I wanted to suggest that the New Testament's depiction of Jesus and the apostles um, does not fit with the way that the Roman Catholic Church talks about the authority, the authority of the hierarchs in the church. Um, I wanted to suggest that actually, uh, even though my own sort of low conception of ecclesial authority and theology sounds anachronistic, it sounds anabaptistic, it sounds like there's no way people could possibly have believed this, you know, before the Reformation era, like you have to be sort of post-Reformation to believe something like this. I think actually that's not true. I think if you pay attention to the way that Jesus interacts with the scribes and the Pharisees, if you pay attention to what he actually tells his apostles, um, and I think also if you pay attention to certain statements made by early patristic figures like Origen and Tertullian, before really the blending of the church with the state in the time of Constantine and later and the, you know, the changes that took place as a result of that. If you pay close attention to certain things that they say, the picture that I'm developing, I think, is exactly a reasonable one. I think it is believable that Jesus, the apostles, and even early patristic figures would have had what I am calling a low conception of the authority of the church in theology. Uh, so, um, you know, the book is where I try to make my case. I'm trying to show that this notion of things is not only philosophically justifiable, but also by appeal to the New Testament and to elements of early church history. Yeah, indeed. That struck me very much was uh, the amount of engagement with the New Testament and exegetical matters. And we'll, we'll, we'll come to that um, uh, shortly. Perhaps you could just provide us a foil, you know, the, the position... Um, that you reject. Uh, maybe you could outline some of the 
the contours of that um, of that position and and uh, as a springboard into elucidating your own views. Sure, uh, the position that I reject is the position, as I understand it, of the Roman Catholic Church as expressed in, uh, like I said earlier, Lumen Gentium and uh, Dei Verbum. Um, in Lumen Gentium, for example, you have this notion of the magisterium of the church, which is comprised of the bishops throughout the entire world who are in communion with one another and with the Bishop of Rome. Um, this magisterium has been, uh, is basically the the you know comprised of the successors to the place of the apostles just as jesus left the apostles to teach the early church the magisterium of the church the bishops um, are understood to be the successors to the place of the apostles and so they retain a sort of an apostolic authority over the whole church they are uh, they guide the church the flock and the place of god as it says um they not only retain apostolic authority they also by the help of the holy spirit are capable in certain instances of acting infallibly and so the decisions that they come to or the determinations that they make are guaranteed by divine providence to be without error. And there are three specific conditions uh, identified by Roman Catholicism in which this is true. Uh, in the first place, when all the bishops gathered throughout, you know, scattered throughout the world in communion with one another and in communion with the Bishop of Rome agree on some issue uh, as being essential to the faith or morals. Um, so if they're all throughout the world, even without consulting with each other, if they happen to have a consensus about some issue as being essential to the faith, and they're all in communion with themselves and with the Bishop of Rome, that can be taken as infallible. Another point is when they are gathered in an ecumenical council, and they make a determination and they have the intent of teaching about, you know, teaching some matter of faith or morals authoritatively. Uh, but again, the condition there is that they are in communion with the Bishop of Rome, and no council can count as ecumenical unless it is by the consent or approval of the Bishop of Rome. So basically the Bishop of Rome is the one who marks the difference between an ecumenical and, and pseudo-ecumenical council. And then finally, the Bishop of Rome himself, uh, because he is the successor to Peter, who according to the Roman Catholics were, was given the keys of the kingdom of heaven uniquely and was told uniquely by Christ that whatever he binds uh, on earth will have been bound in heaven and so on. Uh, this bishop of Rome retains the authority to act infallibly simply of himself. So all the power of an ecumenical council, all the power of a genuine consensus of the bishops throughout the world, the bishop of Rome himself uh, possesses that power, and he can use it at will. And the determinations that he makes uh, when speaking in his authority as the pastor of the entire church um, are authoritative from themselves and not on the basis of the consent of the church. So it's not that his teachings are received by everyone, but rather they, the fact that they come from him is what makes them to be authoritative. Again, when speaking under certain conditions and, and you know, uh, right. and generally also the Pope should only do this in consultation with the other bishops and there has to be a long process about it. But strictly speaking, he has the authority to make a determination and everybody must obey it. Um, and this is given to him by God and the infallibility of his decision is guaranteed by divine providence. Um, so this is the, yeah. in broad strokes, this is the Roman Catholic position, and this is exactly the opposite of what I believe. This is the, this is the opposite of, of the picture that I believe is in the actually in the New Testament. Um, for me, there are only two infallible actors, so to speak, in the church. There are only two persons in the church who exercise theological authority infallibly, and that is God and Christ. 
uh, and everybody else in the church, irrespective of their position within the hierarchy of the church or whatever, you know, uh, whatever prominence they might have, they only have the derivative, uh, fallible and reversible authority of bearing witness to what Christ teaches and to what God has done in him. Uh, so Christ can speak and say something and expect that people obey him. He cannot be called into question. God can do something and it is incumbent upon the church to accept what God has done. Uh, but in the case of any other person, their words are only contingently authoritative, we can say. Uh, they are only authoritative in what they say if they manage to pass on what uh, Christ has taught or to bear adequate testimony to what God has done. And so that means that any other person in principle can be questioned, can be you know, corrected, can be um, contradicted, and so on. Uh, so that's that's the picture that I paint. My I call that a low yeah. conception of ecclesial authority uh, because there is nobody in the church who has what we might call strictly derivative but functionally original authority. This is the phrase that I use in my text. To say that the authority of the Pope, for example, is strictly derivative is to say that the Pope is not God. He is empowered by God to have authority. So his exercise of his authority is strictly derivative. At the same time, it's functionally original because uh, God so empowers the Pope to speak that it's as if God himself has spoken. So that when the Pope speaks under the appropriate circumstances, he cannot be contradicted without you also contradicting God. So even though his exercise of authority is strictly derivative because he's not God, nevertheless, it's functionally original because he speaks with exactly the same authority that God would. Um, what I deny is that anybody in the church has strictly derivative but functionally original authority. Right. Only Christ's authority is uh, original, and so therefore only his authority is um, uh, you know, infallible. Everybody else has the strictly derivative and fallible authority of bearing witness to what Christ has taught. Right. So the the language of authority has, you know, you've used that a lot in, um, in what you've just said, uh, very helpfully summarizing. Um, your argument. Do you have a nice little definition of theological authority and uh, that you could give us uh, to help us navigate some of the discussion? Sure. Theological authority is the right or standing to tell another person what they should or should not do or believe for the sake of friendship with God. Uh, so if you tell a person you should believe this in order that you have friendship with God, or you should not do this in order that you not lose your friendship with God, that's exercising theological authority. And you can do so appropriately or inappropriately, successfully, uh, unsuccessfully, derivatively, originally, fallibly, infallibly, and so on. But that, that in, a, in a nutshell, is what right. theological authority is. It's telling another person what can or cannot be done or believed uh, for the sake of friendship with God. Yeah. Now, um, in, in the, the, the heart of the book is, it seems to me, is, is really an exegetical uh discussion particularly in view of uh, the gospels on matters of traditionalism and and hierarchy mm -hmm. and and maybe then with everything that you've just said in mind we could we could have a look at traditionalism you know what is traditionalism how has it been justified on the basis of of the new testament you know how did thomas joseph white do that in in his book and and, and how are you um, what, what is your thesis and how are you combating some of those moves? Particularly, so let's start off with traditionalism before we turn to hierarchy. Sure. Traditionalism is the idea that in some group, a certain generation of that group can determine 
what that group will do or believe. Um, and this determination is binding and definitive on future generations of the group. Uh, what that means is that it's binding in the sense that if you're going to be a member of that group, you have to go along with it, otherwise you'll be kicked out. And to say that it's definitive is to say that there is no intention or openness to its ever being revised. Uh, so traditionalism is the idea that in some group, some group of people, a particular generation of that group can make a decision about what it's going to do or believe, which is binding and definitive, uh, so that in the future, going forward, uh, in order to be a proper a member of that group in good standing, you have to have a kind of a traditionalist deference to previous generations. You have to go along with what other previous generations have decided is going to determine the identity of that group. Um, so that's what I say is traditionalism. It's, it's a term that I've made up for the sake of this discussion. Um, in Roman Catholicism, traditionalism is related to the question of apostolic authority and apostolic succession. Um, and one particularly important text in this respect is um, the text at Matthew chapter 16, in which Christ tells Peter, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. Um, many Roman Catholic commentators understood these words that were given to, uh, that were said to Peter to have been the instance in which Christ endows Peter with a kind of authority to make decisions, uh, definitive and binding decisions about matters of faith and morals in the church. Um, and presumably he also gives at least a similar, if not exactly the same power to the rest of the apostles in Matthew 18, uh, when he also tells them that whatever they bind will be bound and so on. Uh, so this idea is that if the apostles retain this authority, then it's for the good of the church. This is so that they can benefit the church, right? When conflicts arise, when problems come up in the church, they have this authority to make authoritative, binding, definitive decisions uh, so as to resolve these problems. Uh, but there are always going to be problems of this sort. You know, you can read authors like Peter Kraft make an argument like this. There's always going to be problems in the church. And so therefore, this power always has to exist in the church uh, so that it can always be there to address the problems. And this is where the notion of apostolic succession comes in. Irenaeus, for example, in his Against Heresies, talks about the apostles giving up their place of government to the bishops who came after them. And so if you think that the apostles had a particularly lofty place of government, that they could make these sorts of binding and definitive decisions about what the church is and what it will be, uh, then the bishops themselves have this too, right? So they take on the apostolic calling and the apostolic authority. Um, and so that means that if there are persons in the church who can make decisions about what the church is or is not going to believe or do, uh, then in order for me to be a good a member in, of the church in good standing, I have to show the appropriate deference to those authorities, mm. both the ones that exist now and the ones that existed in the past. Um, and so this is why you have, for example, uh, the notion of ecumenical councils, where the church all throughout the world gets together, the bishops decide this is what we're going to believe. After that, if you don't believe that, you're out, you're anathema. Um, and of course, the decisions of an ecumenical council are not revisable. You know, we're not going to meet again uh, at some point to discuss, you know, to rediscuss Nicaea or anything like that. That's not going to happen because it's contrary to the notion of the apostolic succession in an ecumenical council in the first place. So this is how this idea is uh, typically justified. Um, of course, there was a kind of traditionalism in Jesus's day with the Pharisees and the scribes that we read about in the New Testament. 
um, they accepted, in addition to the written law of Moses, they also accepted this oral tradition that had been passed down from generation to generation. Uh, later in rabbinic uh, uh, Judaism, the claim is made that this tradition was passed down even from Moses, Moses to Joshua, Joshua to someone else, to the prophets, and then the great council. So there's this claim that this tradition goes back in some form or other all the way back to Moses. I don't know where they got that idea from or how they could ever justify it, but that's what they say. Um, so this traditionalism idea, it's not strictly a, a Roman Catholic idea. There's, there was already this sort of quasi-traditionalist structure in New Testament times and the, the, the Pharisees give testimony to it. And so, for example, the Pharisees complain about Jesus, why don't, or about his disciples. Why don't your disciples wash their hands before they eat in accordance with the traditions of the elders? Here they're appealing again to this traditionalist idea. There were people who came before us uh, who made a decision. This is how things should be for us. And we, in order to be a part of their people, a part of their group, we have to show the appropriate deference to their prior determinations. And can you, can you give us a little bit of details of, of, of so Jesus responds right to to um, yeah to the Pharisees and to the traditionalism of of washing hands according to the tradition of the elders. How do you understand what Jesus says? How does that relate to the, these debates? I think Jesus's response in uh, Matthew chapter 9, for example, is very interesting uh, because I think the way that he responds to their claim and the way that he acts in general shows that he is not a traditionalist. He does not have this idea in mind that one generation of the people of God can make a binding and definitive you know, determination that all future generations have to obey. Um, and I can, I can try to explain this point as follows. In the first place, notice that Jesus does not wash his hands either, right? This Luke points this out, I think in chapter 11, and a lot of commentators dealing with the passage in Matthew will point to Jesus's own practice as testified by Luke as explaining why his disciples don't wash their hands. Um, so the Pharisees show up, they see that the disciples have not ritually washed their hands before eating, as is the tradition of the elders, and they bring that up. Um, and then Jesus says to them, you know, you guys prefer the traditions of men to the commandments of God because you say, and then he gives the example of Korban, uh, and he says, well, listen, when you allow people to consecrate money to God rather than using it to take care of their parents, um, but God commanded that you honor your father and your mother and that you not curse them, well, you're teaching people to disobey the commandments of God. Uh, and then you know, he says, he makes that interesting statement about uh, purity, and it's not what goes into a man's mouth that defiles him, but what comes out of it. The way that Jesus acts here and the way that he argues suggests to me that he is not a traditionalist, and he does not have this idea in mind that one generation of God's people can make determinations that are binding and definitive for all future generations. And the reason why is as follows. In the first place, he himself does not obey the tradition about washing his hands. Uh, and this is the point that I justified earlier by appeal to Luke's gospel. His disciples don't. Okay, this is a tradition that had support in favor of it. The elders that the Pharisees appealed to, they passed this tradition down. Jesus is a part of the same people as they are. He is a part of the Jewish people, and they think that this tradition is binding on him. He disregards it. The reason why he disregards it, apparently from what he says, is that there is no command to do so from God. God himself never commanded the whole Jewish people to ritually wash their hands before they eat. Um, and not only does he say that, uh, not only does he not do this because there is no command from God to do so, he also thinks that the Pharisees do wrong in preferring the traditions of men to the commandments of God. Now, Jesus's lesson is that, I think, that a tradition can only be unqualifiedly authoritative if it comes from God, if it bears witness to something that God has commanded. 
If it does not bear witness to something that God has commanded, then you are not under any obligation to obey it. You may, but you don't have to, uh, and certainly cannot be opposed upon you. Um, but notice what, what is interesting here. Jesus says that the Pharisees prefer the traditions of men to the commandments of God. That tells me that I have to be on the lookout to make sure that I'm not doing that. <laughs> now, how can I make sure mm. that I am not preferring the tradition of men to the commandments of God? The only way I can do that is if God himself does not speak through traditions, so to speak. There's God's word when he speaks, and then there is the historic testimony to that word in the form of a tradition. But tradition and God's speech are never blended. God does not speak by means of the historical d- development or evolution of traditions in time. Uh, this is a critical point that I think um, undermines a lot of Catholic, not only Roman Catholic, but even a lot of just lowercase Catholic thinking about the way that God communicates things in history uh, and about the kind of authority that you can give to the traditions of the church or of the people of God. Um, the only way that you can avoid preferring the traditions of men to the commandments of God is if God does not speak through men and their traditions. Their traditions are at best attempts to bear witness to what God has spoken. And God him- speaks for himself, so to speak. He has his own voice. He has his own mode of speaking, his own time of speaking. Um, and he does not speak through these traditions that develop. Um, this, I think, is a general point that is valid in the Old Testament and in the Jewish way of thinking. Human beings are free, and they can make mistakes. And even if God's providence is behind all things, we can never draw a straight line from something happening to God's endorsing what happens um, in any profound sense. Certainly everything that happens happens because God at least allows it. But not everything that happens is indicative of God, what of what God prefers or what he thinks is worth having for its own sake. Because, for example, he allows human sin, but it's not that he prefers sin, and yet he allows it to happen. Um, so it seems to me that the way Jesus reasons, he implies that God does not speak by means of these developing traditions that arise over time and that find, you know, a, uh, uh, you know get uh, develop consensuses within the church or within the community or whatever. He says there's God's word, and then there are the traditions of men, and you have to compare the two, and you have to make sure that you're not preferring the one to the other. Um, so this is the way that I think Jesus' own way of acting and arguing undermines traditionalism. On the one hand, you have a tradition which has some authority behind it, He disregards it entirely. He does not think that you are under any obligation to ritually wash your hands before eating just because it's a tradition and just because the elders have passed it down. The reason why, presumably, is because there is no commandment from God to do so. On the other hand, Jesus presents the positive teaching. You should not prefer the commandments, uh, the traditions of men to the commandments of God. But the only way that you can avoid that problem is if both of those things are separately given, so to speak. You have the commandments of God, which are given on their own, and then you have human traditions, which in the best case can be ongoing testimony to the, tr- to the commandments of God, but that contain no authority of themselves and cannot be imposed on others simply because they're traditions. The only way that they contain authority is if they manage to bear witness to what God has independently commanded. Mm, thanks. Yeah, very, very rich response. And uh, anticipating something I wanted to pick up um, a little bit later on. Now, before we get a hierarchy uh, um, and a similar set of thoughts about that, let's let's go into the quick fire round. Uh, now, sure. for, for those who've listened to OnScript, um, they'll know what this is. It's simply uh, a bunch of questions, off-the-cuff answers, um, you know, uh, be unguarded. You can lose your job, obviously, if you say the wrong thing, so not too unguarded. <laughs> um but just um, just a few. 
I've just been wondering what you do to relax, you know, because I kind of see you as someone who's engaged in top level analytic, philosophical and theological debates. And I kind of see you doing that in your spare time, but that can't be right. What do you do to relax? Well, I do like to sit on the couch and watch Netflix with my wife after my son goes to sleep. Um, I like to go out and watch a football game with my friends. I love listening to music really loudly in my car. For example, if I drive somewhere and I'm, you know, I, I'm in a good mood, I'll play, you know, jazz music or prog rock or something and just play it as loud as I can and, and rock out in my car. Um, but I also just like writing. I love writing. Writing for me is also a relaxing thing. Um, so even though it feels like a, even though it seems like it's high intensity activity all the time, it's also very enjoyable for me. I, you know, I call myself homo scribens, the writing man. Uh, so I, I love to write. And that's another way that I relax is getting my thoughts out on paper. Oh, wonderful. So what, what characteristics of a theologian or biblical scholar do you find the most attractive? I like in general when people are not predictable, when they don't easily fit into pre-established categories. Um, this is perhaps because my whole life I've always been on the margins. I'm an ethnic minority. I'm a religious minority. Even within my religious community, I was a minority because I studied philosophy. Even among the people that I studied philosophy with, I was a minority because I had certain predilections and others. Even with my fellow grad students or the postdocs that I was working with at Fuller, I was a minority because they were all studying analytic theology. I was studying phenomenology. So I don't fit in anywhere. I like it when people don't fit in. I like it when they have something new and different a novel combination of ideas and insights to bring. So I like when people are not just stereotype cookie you know, cookie cutter, reformed or Anglican or Catholic or whatever, when they can bring something new and, and shed a new light on things. That's what I, I really appreciate. Oh yeah. I I'm with you on that. Totally. This is a slightly, well, this is also an open-ended question. I mean, all of them are, but what do you hope will become of biblical and theological scholarship over the next 50 years. Are there any, you know, a couple of highlights that you'd love to see um, crystallize, uh, emerge? I would love to see um, theology and biblical studies become less encumbered by what I consider to be unneeded dogmatic constraints on inquiry and research. I would like it to become a more open discussion um, and have alternative positions considered um, because Christians themselves, at least among the Christians who are engaged in these tasks, the Christians themselves have reoriented their focus elsewhere. One of the things that I try to argue in this book is that the Catholic tradition has sort of disproportionately emphasized correct doctrine to the neglect of the actual practical good that Christians can do in the world if they were to work together. As it stands, coming out of the Catholic tradition, we have hundreds of different churches who are not in communion with one another, um, who don't collaborate with one another very much. They all go to church on Sundays, you know, to hear a message that they already agree with. Basically, they go there to feel good about themselves. Then they go back into the work week. It seems to me that the vision of the church at the beginning was a society for doing good. Um, and the thing that is keeping, there are so many Christians on the face of the earth right now, and there are so many resources possessed by Christians that it seems to me that if they would only collaborate with each other, they could do a lot of good. Uh, but the thing that is keeping them, or at least one thing that is keeping them from collaborating is that they have all these dogmatic differences among them. They belong to different churches. They sometimes even see themselves as members of different religions, and they just won't work with each other. And they are more concerned about 
dogmas and beliefs and doctrines and endless theological you know inquiries rather than actually doing good and helping someone um, so if there's one thing that I would like to see in the future with theology and biblical studies it's the sort of the the freeing here I I'll sound like Adolf Honeck when I talk like this the freeing of these these um, fields from you know the dogmatic chains that hold back inquiry and that keep people in paradigms just because they're dogmatically required by the churches, but also that Christians, apart from these, you know, allow these fields of inquiry to be purely academic, which is what they should be. They should just be an inquiry into the truth about these matters uh, and not matters of life and death and salvation and damnation because Christians themselves have now dedicated themselves to doing good for people. Um, so I think theology and biblical studies should be academic enterprises that are not hindered by dogmatic constraints. And this should not be a point of salvation anxiety that you propose a high Christology or whatever reading of, you know, an early dating of the Exodus or something like that. Those should not be points where people are worried about salvation or worried about this or that. Uh, rather, we should be trying to do good and help each other. This is where our real focus as Christians should be in helping people. And the purely academic inquiry into these things should be allowed to go freely with the truth really being the only criterion or the only condition of inquiry. So final question. Just and this top three books, and they don't need to be theological. What you know, just top three books that you have influenced you the most, or you enjoy the most, or um, one of the top books that has influenced me is. Well, these days, anyway, I would say that my three principal influences are Huldrych Zwingli, um, Adolf Harnack, and Michel Henry, the French phenomenologist. So I'll just give you three books by them, by Huldrych Zwingli. I very much like his treatise on the Lord's Supper, but I also appreciate his commentary on true and false religion. So I would give, I'll cheat there, I'll give two books. I very much like uh, Adolf Harnack's What is Christianity? Uh, I quote from it for a couple of times in this book, and I love this line that he has towards the end. And this this resonates with me perfectly. He says towards the end, he, I think he, were, he was giving lectures at a university when he went, you know, then this, they became this book. He says, gentlemen, um, Religion, the love of God and the love of neighbor gives life a meaning. Knowledge cannot do it. I agree with that entirely. It seems to me that a truly meaningful life is one lived in love of God and in love of neighbor. Uh, and knowledge, scientific knowledge, that will not bring you that. Uh, it can be useful, it can be helpful, but it won't give you a truly meaningful life, which is only possible with love. And then from Michel Henry, I love his book, Words of Christ. Michel Henry is, again, kind of an outsider. He's sort of a marginal figure. He's becoming more popular as a French phenomenologist, but he certainly does not fit the bill. He's, he's got his own thing. He, his whole life, basically, he was pursuing his own research interests and his own project, and he doesn't quite fit easily into the boundaries of French phenomenology. Um, so I, I've always liked these sort of outsider figures. Even Zwingli is kind of an outsider figure in comparison to, to Calvin and Luther. Um, and Harnack certainly is an outsider figure in comparison to other major Protestant theologians in the the 20th century. So I've always had a thing for outsider figures. Michel Henry is another one of them. Those would be three books. The Commentary on True and False yeah. Religion by Zwingli, What is Christianity by Harnack, and Words of Christ by Michel Henry. Well, I fascinating stuff. Let's turn to um, hierarchy. Um, what is um, hierarchy uh, um, understood in 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 your, uh, uh, which I forget which chapter it is now, um, I think it's chapter four. In chapter four, thank you. Yes, and um, how has it been justified, and and what do you do with the New Testament in order to make a case against uh, a certain understanding of hierarchy and theological authority? Sure. 
Uh, hierarchy is the idea that a certain group is intrinsically structured in such a way that there are persons who possess a rank not possessed by others uh, and who have, on the basis of that rank, the authority to make unquestionable decisions about things for that group. Um, an example of hierarchy would be, um, you know, the United States government. The United States is a hierarchical society. Ordinary citizens do not possess the right that senators or the president or Supreme Court judges do. Um, in the Catholic Church, the Catholic Church, uh, lowercase c, is a hierarchical institution. The laity do not possess the same authority and the rights as the deacons or presbyters or bishops. For example, when you do have this tripartite structure eventually develop. Um, in Roman Catholicism, that same thing holds. You know, there is a hierarchy. There's a distinction between the laity and the clergy. Um, even within the clergy, there's a distinction between presbyters and bishops. Even among the bishops, there's a distinction between every other bishop and the Bishop of Rome. Um, so there is this hierarchical institution. And hierarchy means that a person can possess such a rank within the group that they can say something, they can propose something be done, and they cannot legitimately be called into question. And the Bishop of Rome is the perfect example of this. Under certain circumstances, in certain occasions, he can make a determination for the church that cannot legitimately be called into question by anybody else. Um, now, how is this idea justified? Well, certainly you do have this hierarchical notion of the church develop in history. Um, by the time you get to the Arian controversy of the fourth century, you have you know this distinction between bishops and presbyters and deacons and then the lady below them. Uh, you know, theological authority is basically the prerogative of the bishops. They are in charge of things. Uh, so you do have this authoritative you know, sort of hierarchical structure arise in time. Uh, what I question is whether there was a hierarchy among Jesus's disciples and the earliest generations of Christians. Um, and one of the reasons why I question this is because Jesus, for example, in Matthew's gospel, uh, tells in the middle of, you know, towards the beginning of this long diatribe polemic against the Pharisees, he tells his disciples, um, you are not to be called instructors, for you all have one instructor, nor are you to call anyone on earth fa father, for you all have one in father, you all have one father, the one in heaven, uh, nor are you to be called instructors, because you all have one instructor, the Messiah, and you are all students. That's a paraphrase. I'm sure I missed, mixed up a couple of the verses there. But essentially what he tells his disciples there is that you are not to call other people teachers because all of you are students uh, and brothers. You are not to call other people's father because you all have one father, the one who is in heaven. And neither are people to call you teachers because, again, you all have one teacher, the Messiah. Um, now, this, it seems to me, is one of the most strikingly egalitarian statements that Jesus makes in, his, uh, in the Gospels. In, in um, Robert Gundry, for example, in commenting on this passage, says that Jesus puts all of his disciples on a position of democratic equality uh, under his didactic authority. Uh, so they are all equally under his didactic authority. Um, and other commentators also uh, uh, note this, the, this sort of egalitarian tone of this passage. Now, it seems to me that it cannot be true that everybody in the church is a student and a brother, a brother and a student of the Messiah. If there are persons within the church who have unquestionable authority and they are not the Messiah, uh, like the Bishop of Rome does, for example. Uh, it seems to me that Christ, when he told the Pharisees that they prefer the traditions of men to the commandments of God, he understood 
implicitly that their traditionalism was a part of the problem here. The, the fact that they are more committed to these ideas that were passed down to them rather than comparing those ideas to the words of God and understanding that God is distinguishable from every person that claims to speak in his name. Um, he understood that this was a problem. This is why they were like this. Uh, and he calls them blind guides of the blind, right? Leave them alone. They're a plant that my father has not planted. They need to be uprooted and so on. Uh, when he tells his own disciples uh, that you are not to be called teachers, you're not to call anybody else a teacher, you're not to call anyone father, uh, he is trying to prevent this sort of excessive deference to past figures and excessive deference to you know, people who have a presumed position of authority within the church. Uh, because he tells them, you all have one teacher who is the Messiah. Um, and then at the end of Matthew's gospel, he commissions them to go into the world and to make disciples of all nations, teaching them all that I have commanded you. Uh, so again, the only authority that the apostles have from Jesus is that of passing on his teachings. He does not give them authority to make their own determinations. He does not give them authority to um, pass on their own opinions about the way that Jesus should be interpreted. The authority that they receive from Jesus, strictly speaking, according to the words of Matthew, is that of passing on his teachings. Um, because he alone is the Messiah. He alone is the, the, the teacher of his people. Everybody else is a student in the classroom. And obviously, if you're a student, um, you can disagree with another student about how to understand what the teacher is saying. The teacher teaches and the student learns. Um, and the student, you know, maybe there are within a classroom tutor-like figures who maybe are better students than others, um, and they can help other students along and they can bring them up and bring them to speed, so to speak. Uh, but a tutor is not a teacher. And the tutor can always be contradicted by the teacher. The tutor can always be mistaken in principle. It's the teacher alone who teaches uh, and everybody else in the classroom is a student. So it seems to me that in this particular instance, in the way that Jesus talks in this, as a part of his polemic against the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23, what he is trying to suggest among his disciples is that they should not show excessive deference to any particular other person uh, within this community of the church. They should not seek to get excessive deference themselves, even though they're apostles, uh, but rather they have one father who is God and they have one teacher, the Messiah, and they are all his students. So he sort of puts them all on the unequal playing level. Do you think, because um, this is related clearly um, as, as a reading of the New Testament, that you could just give us in a nutshell how you read the, the famous on this rock uh, passage, which I'll, I'll, I'll read out in a moment. Obviously, the people can pick up the book for the details of your exegetical work. But, sure. but here we are. Blessed are you, Simon bar Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I say to you that you are Petal, Petros, and on this rock, Petra, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and so on and so forth. Um, yeah. Obviously, this is an important text in, in these discussions. How, how do you read that? Well, I read it in light of what I take to be Jesus's clear rejection of uh, traditionalism and hierarchy in other places in the gospel. I think that a proper reading of this text is not going to have Jesus installing in his own community the very things that he finds so troublesome in Pharisaism, for example. And so when Christ tells Peter, um, you are Peter, uh, and on this rock, um, I agree with Augustine's reading that on this rock does not refer to Peter, but rather to Christ himself. Christ is the rock. Uh, he is the Petra, and Peter is named Peter after the Petra uh, in a sort of, a, his name is kind of an adjective. His name uh, is not intended to be understood as 
Christ calling him the rock, but rather he's sort of of rock, or he's rocky, or he's made of rock, or he's in some relation to the rock, uh, in virtue of his confession of faith. Christ himself, however, is the rock on which he builds his church. I think this is evident from the way that Christ is presented in Matthew's gospel, when he says, for example, no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone that, to whom the Son chooses to reveal to him. Um, at the end of Matthew's gospel, when he commissions his disciples to propagate his teachings and not their own teachings. Um, I think it's also consonant with the way that Peter is depicted in Matthew's gospel, which is almost uniformly negatively. Um, Peter seems to never do anything right. And the final time that Peter is mentioned by name in Matthew's gospel is when he curses Jesus and uh, three times and denies him. Um, after that, Peter is not mentioned by name. There is no reconciliation of Peter with Jesus in Matthew's gospel. Uh, the only other time Peter could be mentioned, he's sort of disappeared into the crowd of the 11 at the mountain when there, the great commission takes place. So it seems to me that Matthew does not present Peter in his gospel as the rock on which the church is built, but he does present Christ as having the pretense of being the rock on which the church will be built. So I take it that when he says on this rock, he's referring to himself. Just like in John's gospel, he says, destroy this temple, and he's referring to himself according to John. Now, when it says the gates of Hades will not prevail against it, the pronoun there, autes, uh, is a feminine, and it could refer either to Petra or to Ecclesia, uh, the church. Um, the more common opinion would be that it refers to Ecclesia because that's the closest noun. Uh, but there is no necessity in the pronoun referring to the closest noun, uh, and it could equally refer to Petra, uh, which I'm saying is Jesus himself. Um, I think that it does refer to Jesus because the church is never put in connection with Hades in the New Testament, but Jesus is uh, put in connection with Hades in Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2, and in Revelation he says that he has the gates of Hades, or he has the keys of Hades. So I take it that when Christ says that the gates of Hades will not prevail against Altes, he means Petra, he means the rock, uh, and he's basically foretelling his, his resurrection. The gates of Hades are not going to prevail against him, the rock, because he will rise from the dead. Uh, when Jesus tells Peter, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, people see a connection here with Isaiah 22 and the key of the house of David. I agree that there is maybe a kind of a, a non-specific textual allusion of some kind, but I don't agree that Peter, for example, is being established as a second in command, just as Eliakim is being put in the place of Shebna in David's kingdom. Uh, I think actually what's going on is that the keys of the kingdom of heaven are specific tools by which Peter will be able to open up and close the kingdom of heaven to certain people. Just as I use a key to open a car, and a key is not a symbol of just an authority to do anything whatsoever, but it's a specific, it, it empowers me to do something specific, to open and close something specifically. Um, Jesus is telling him that, telling Peter that he will give him something by which he will open and close the kingdom of heaven to people. And it seems to me from Matthew's gospel, the best candidate for that is Jesus's own teachings. Uh, his teachings, his words that he brings to people are what open the kingdom of heaven to those who accept them and what close them to those who, what close it to those who reject them. And so when he says, what you bind will have been bound in heaven, what you loose will have been loosed in heaven, I take it that he is assuring Peter that by using the key of his teachings, he will in fact be acting in accordance with the will of heaven, unlike the Pharisees. The Pharisees bound and loosed as they pleased, and Jesus obviously thinks that they are misleading the people, they're imposing laws that they have no reason to impose on them, they're you know casting heavy burdens on people without helping them to lift them, and so on. So Peter, uh, Jesus does not think that the Pharisees bind and loose correctly, but he is assuring Peter that by using the keys of his teachings, he will bind and loose correctly because he will have the teachings of God's son by which the kingdom of heaven can be opened or closed to a person.
Um, so interestingly enough, rather than Jesus empowering Peter to have this kind of blanket authority to make defi- definitive and binding decisions, uh, you know, at his at will, I think to the contrary, what Jesus is doing here is telling Peter that if I will give you my teachings, and by using these teachings, you can be guaranteed that you will be teaching in accordance with the will of heaven. Um, but if Peter goes off on his own, if he starts to speak from himself, then he no longer has that guarantee. Uh, so I read the way that I read this text, far from empowering Peter to you know have this sort of like functionally original authority. Um, I think quite to the contrary, it it puts on Peter a responsibility to be faithful to the teachings of Jesus and not to interpose his own teachings, his own opinions, his own ideas, uh, because he doesn't have any guarantee. His teachings are not the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus's teachings are, and so his responsibility, his, uh, his task as a teacher in the church is to pass on Jesus's teachings and not to speak from himself. Now, when, when you're talking about the teachings of Jesus and, and, and how tradition at best can bear witness to, um, the, the pristine, if you like, the, the, the true authority, yeah. um, you, you use, um, variations on on these phrases throughout the book it's the teachings of jesus and the work of god in him or or something like that yeah um that's that's your central point if you you like what what can you unpack that for us um what that means sure um the teachings of jesus refers to those things that jesus you know taught to other people the works of god refer to what God has done in and around Jesus. And I, I include this other notion of the works of God in him uh, because I think that the, the welcoming of the Gentiles into the church in, the, in Acts uh, is an important consideration in this discussion. Why is it, for example, that Gentiles can become Christians without having to take up the whole burden of the law? Well, according to Acts chapter 15, um, it's because God himself had shown that he had accepted the Gentiles by sending them his spirit. Um, And so Peter says in Acts chapter 11, when people call him into question and they say, how come you went into the house of a Gentile? Uh, He says, look, I was preaching the gospel and the spirit came upon them, fell upon them just as it had with us. And he says, who was I to stand in God's way? Right. So it's it's not only that um, by preaching the gospel, he's, he's done his duty, but he also has the duty of not getting in the way of God. When God sent his Holy Spirit upon the Gentiles, it was Peter's duty at that point to recognize the work of God and to submit to it. Um, there, Peter was teaching sort of precisely by not teaching. He, he was teaching precisely by not asserting his own authority, but by submitting to what God is doing. So I take it that the inclusion of the Gentiles into the church by means of the activity of God, the sending of the Holy Spirit when they believe in Christ, um, this is also something that cannot be called into question by the church. The apostles in Acts chapter 15, I like the way that Luke Timothy Johnson puts it in his Uh, commentary, he says that basically they are just going along. They're following God's lead. God is doing something. He's showing the way by including the Gentiles. And the the responsibility of the church at that point is to submit to what God has done rather than to put excessive burdens on the Gentiles uh, that God himself has not approved. Um, So the reason why I talk about the teachings of Jesus and the works of God in him is because it is not just that the things that Jesus himself said when he was on earth but also the things that God does around Jesus, so to speak, uh, in giving the Holy Spirit to the Gentiles who believed in him and so on. Uh, these are the things that are unquestionably authoritative for Christians, but particular traditions, ideas, opinions of human teachers who are not Jesus, those things are not unquestionably authoritative for Christians. Those things can 
um, be called into question in principle. And if they disagree with what Jesus taught or with what God is doing, then they should be rejected. Well, I've realized we're frustratingly running out of time, um, but the, there's so much more to, to talk about, really. The, this is a tremendous book uh, to, to, to open up a can of worms, to, to put the issues with utter clarity uh, out on the table um, for further discussion. Um, the nature of providence and the, the, the mediated nature of the knowledge of God, all of these things I'd love to chat with you in more depth about. Perhaps we'll be able to do that over a coffee at some stage at SBL. Um, but um, I realize now we're running out of time and I wanted to say a huge thank you for this um, very, very interesting discussion. And we can look for the publication of the book uh, early 2023 by Cascade, correct? Yes, as far as I understand, yes. Super. Well, um, we have come to the end of uh, of our um, pod podcast. Stephen, thank you um, for your time. Thank you for taking us through um, these exegetical and theological highways and byways. Um, and we wish you the very best. We're recording this shortly before Christmas 2022, and we wish everyone a very happy Christmas. Thank you, Chris. Uh, thank you for your very kind words about my book. Thank you for your time and uh, happy Christmas to you and your family as well. You have been listening to OnScript, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just two or five dollars per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study/donate.